and welcome to Oh What a Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Tom Crane. I'm Chris Skull. And I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show, we'll be looking at a new historical subject. And today, we're going to be discussing healthcare. From the history of the common cold to how the ancients worked out what diabetes was, plus the worst headache cure you have ever heard. Thank you once again for your emails. They've been flooding in. Tom, you've been in charge of the postbag this week. What have you got for us? Yes, so as usual, uh, you guys have not disappointed. Credible emails. Some of the best emails I've ever read <laughs> have come in from you guys. Uh, before we get into that, should we have a quick um, Latin test? We did this back in the day. Yeah. People left reviews written in Latin. I'll give you a new one that's just coming this week. It simply says, Veni Vidi Rissi, and that's from Miriam. Do you know what that means? Never studied Latin. Wasn't offered at my school. I'm going to say, um, I think I am. Yeah. I listen to podcasts. I think I am. <laughs> Are we close? It's actually not bad. Well, you, you've got the rhythm of it, right? I'm not sure how <laughs> impressive that is. It's, I came, I saw, I laughed. Ah. Look at that, Miriam. Ah. Thank you, Miriam. Now, if you guys want to re- leave a review in any ancient language... Feel free. As long as it's attached to a five-star, we'll try and work it out. If it is, so, we'll ignore it. So much nicer than saying conquered. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Far more pleasant. Now, into the meteor emails uh, for this week. First of all, let's kick off with Ben Steele. Ben Steele has got in contact. Now, I don't know if you remember last week, I think it was, well, maybe it was the week before, I was talking about going to a battle reenactment. Yeah. Uh, and seeing someone in some Converse All-Stars and it really taking me out of the moment. <laughs> So he said, hey, uh, love the show. Just wanted to add to Crane's story of being taken out of the spell of battle reenactments when he was about 12 by a roundhead wearing Converse that he mentioned in the Adventurers <laughs> episode. Roundhead wearing Converse. <laughs> See, it, 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 it lacks an attention to detail. I think if you're yeah. putting yourself into the world of battle reenactments, surely you're thorough enough to look down at your feet. Yeah. If you're going to that much effort. That Roman legion's terrifying in its new balance. <laughs> <laughs> But why does that only extend to the top half? But anyway, this man here, Ben, said, at a similar age, I went to an event at Tattershall Castle in Lincolnshire that had a battle reenactment where one of the guys doing it was accidentally wounded by a medieval pike. Oh, oh man. I what? told Claire about this. I read it to Claire. And Claire, my very intelligent wife, responded, what, do you mean the fish? It <laughs> sounds like a lie, but genuinely isn't. I could get her in here, get on the mic, if you believe a medieval pike. I'm not sure how that would work. An 800-year-old big fish. <laughs> what, slapped it round his face? It was just the bones, like a, like a, like <laughs> yeah. what you get in a cartoon bin. So Ben says, unfortunately, the subsequent arrival of the air ambulance really spoiled the atmosphere. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure if the NHS were used to dealing with pike-based injuries in the early 2000s, but I'm assured by my mum, who worked in the A&E at the time, that he was fine in the end. Love the show, Ben. So That, that must have been quite an injury if it got an air ambulance. It's like a proper Absolutely. medieval injury. Right. I've got a history question you're not going to get on any other history podcast. I'm yeah. taking you back to the day of Agincourt, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a little stall there, packed full of Converse All-Stars. <laughs> How many of the English army are going... Get this, get this footwear off my feet. I want a pair of Converse All Stars. Well, my first question would be, how muddy is it on the day? Yeah, very muddy, infamously muddy. I think you're struggling to shift any. If it was quite a dry field, I actually think it's far, it can be a far more comfortable shoe than what was available at the time. Yeah, good enough for basketball players in the fifties as well. Also, we think the Converse All Star is is cool because of its history in college basketball and stuff like that in America. 
it would have had no, it would have none of that context. So people would just go, "That is the weirdest looking piece of footwear I've ever seen." You'll be pushing the Battle of Agincourt back four hours while you tell them the history of 1950s yeah. college bars. And then, of course, the Strokes made them popular again in the early two thousands. <laughs> Meanwhile, the French are going, should we just call this off? <laughs> well, if, you, if, you, if on the off chance you are the man who is stabbed by a, spike, a pike at Tashiel Castle, do get in contact with the show and let us know um, what's happened exactly yes. and why that happened, because I would, I would love to know. Um, John Izzard has contacted the show to say, I just listened to the Jobs episode. This is fascinating, this. This is amazing. I love our listeners. This is so interesting. Just listening to the Jobs episode and wanted to flag a time-related job you may not have heard of, but which felt oddly related to those stick-toting waker-uppers. Now, this is in the Jobs episode. We talked about people who went around and woke people up around the city, around the town, before people had watches and clocks and stuff like that. Um, John says, my fourth great-grand-aunt was a lady called Ruth Belville, <laughs> who what? was born... I'm... Sorry, don't, don't move a fourth great-grand-aunt. Oh, yeah. What's that? That's not a good enough link, is it? <laughs> the, I can't even. I can't even do the mental maths on what that family tree looks like. What he says here is, as in great, 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 great aunt. Yeah. So the sister of your great, great, great grandfather or grandmother. Wow. Okay. To be honest, if you bump into a, if you bump into her at a christening, the conversation's going to be stilted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're 150 years old. <laughs> Well, that's, that's actually quite easy conversationally. If you can't have a conversation with somebody who's 150 <laughs> years old, you can't come up with any interesting questions, yeah. then I think yeah. the problem is with, is with you. Even, yeah, just question, well, <laughs> what's it like? Exactly. <laughs> you must be knackered. <laughs> um, so this lady was called Ruth Belleville, who was born in Greenwich in 1854. She affectionately became known as the Greenwich Time Lady, as her job was to sell people the accurate time around London. So her dad, John Belville, uh, worked in the Royal Observatory, and clockmakers used to come to Greenwich to set the correct time. But John apparently had a massively accurate pocket watch. It was, like, really, really accurate. So he decided... Who's the guy going around describing it as massively accurate? <laughs> well, it's, it's, our, it's our listener, uh, John Izzard, who's describing it as massively accurate to, like, a tenth of a second, apparently. So he decided to send the time via messenger establishments, and they would pay for the service, and they'd then adjust their clocks according to his pocket watch. And then Ruth, his great-aunt, took over the business in 1892 and only retired at the age of 85 in 1940. 40 due oh. to the dangers of wandering around the London during the Blitz. So up until the Blitz, people were going around and selling the correct time. That is very cool. It is, isn't it? Yeah. That is so cool. I would dine out on that forever. Now, we've had so many of these, as always, uh, on uh, One Day Time Machine, the world's best bit of uh, audio business. Cue the sting. It's the one day time machine. 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 And this is from Philip Madden, who says, Hello, lads. I was hoping to use the time machine to witness and slightly alter history. It's quite a short one, but I really enjoyed it. My idea is to go back to witness the birth of Jesus Christ, but as a coffee table. Now, we need to explain that people haven't been listening that Ellis is insistent you can go back as a coffee table if you want. The plan being to see if the presence of a coffee table makes it into the Gospels. <laughs> and from that, into the standard nativity scene. I thought it would be quite funny if every school's nativity play and all nativity sets contained, and I love this in the language here, a standard coffee table. <laughs> so That's so brilliant. 
Okay, I'm going to ask the listeners for a favour now. Christmas is around the corner. If you've got a nativity scene, please get a little doll's coffee table. Yeah. Insert it into the nativity scene. Take a picture. Send it to us. It will go on the Instagram every oh, single time. So funny. <laughs> That is hilarious. That is a, that is brilliant. We've had a really cool email from John Izzard, because I love that his fourth grade auntie was yeah. selling accurate time. Yeah. In the in the age of the smartphone, that it's just and the Apple Watch. It's just so it's it's beyond belief. The idea Absolutely. that like, what you want at the time, <laughs> you'd have to pay for it. Yeah. But a coffee table in the Bible. What would be on it? What book? Sapiens. Oh, come on, mate. That's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Well, John Izzard's email has inspired a new feature, I think. If you're related to someone who either had a really cool job or someone famous in history, please do let us know on hello at ohwatatime.com. Um, are you related to anyone famous or interesting? Any ancient relatives that did something really cool, Tom and Chris? Well, are you, I'm glad you're sitting down. Get this. My... Mother's sister's ex-husband, his sister, is the sister. Before you tell us this, Chris, can I just tell you one thing? <laughs> just to remind you, you took you took umbrage on John Izzard mentioning his fourth great grand aunt, and now I'm you've there. named Wait, fifteen you, different you, categories of person. <laughs> so my my mum's sister's ex-husband's sister yeah. is married yeah. to Ken Doherty, the snooker player. Yes. We got <laughs> yeah. there in the end, and yeah. it was worth it. So have you met Ken Doherty? No. Oh. <laughs> My brother's tapped him up for snooker tickets once. <laughs> That's as far as it's got. I've never met him. Quick because maths, I wouldn't quick. want to stand in front of him relaying how we're not probably not even related to yeah. modern relation. Yeah. Well, I was about to give you the quick uh, math problem trying to work out what are you to Ken Doherty if he was telling you the other way around. <laughs> Let's see if you can work no that out. One. I am no one. I'll tell you that now. Well, this sounds like a lie, but it's not a lie. Uh, Izzy's mother's side, they were La Balestiers, like Lewis Hamilton is a La Balestier. And uh, one of Izzy's cousins worked out that they shared, they're like seventh... Um, they have seventh great grandparents in common, so she is very busy, and thus my children are very, very distantly related to Lewis Hamilton. Really? <laughs> and it sounds like bollocks. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing that we only really discuss as a family because it sounds it sounds like you're you're telling a, a mad lie, yeah. but no. So um, have you have you felt any of that money trickle down? That is exactly what I said. That's the first thing I said. He's a multi-billionaire, is he? <laughs> will you be there for the reading of the will? <laughs> on the off chance. People go, why is Ellis James here? <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> what did you say? Have you ever bumped into him? No. Have, have, you, have, you, have you got to the end of the will? You mentioned the car, the fast car. Maybe he's left his <laughs> really fast Imagine car. if that's the thing I got left, his car. <laughs> Completely impossible to park anywhere. <laughs> Speed bumps would be a nightmare. <laughs> Your neighbours in Crystal Palace live in at how loud the engine is when you set off for work in the morning. Tyres cost quarter of a million quid each. <laughs> Oh, it needs a service. We're going to have to remortgage. Absolutely the worst car in London traffic as well. That is not what you need in the stop-start world of London traffic. Bad in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> Zero storage space. No so space for the kids. One seat. Yeah. Get it on the M1, though. M1, oh. though. Late at night, no traffic. Can you imagine how quick you get to centre parks? <laughs> 
true. If you left at four in the morning and you said, I'll see you at Centre Parks in two and a half minutes. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Well, let's hope that happens. So if you are related to anyone, get in contact with the show. Let us know who. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So this week I will be talking about how the ancients dealt with diabetes and the study of urology. And I'm going to be talking about the common cold, the history of the common cold. Now I'm going to talk about headaches. Now, um, I don't know if you saw the news recently of a scan that revealed this patient had a worm growing in her in their brain did you see that oh yeah it was in australia i think it was a, i think it was a woman i can't remember with a with a worm in her brain which is even in the age of modern medicine uh, and you know very positive health outcomes for all manner of different diseases bad news yeah, yeah. also that woman wasn't she doing something like drinking pond water you know no she'd actually been no i can tell you what she was doing she had been Creating a drink using herbs and like plants near where she lived. She'd been going out gathering plants and herbs, whatever they are. I can't remember the specific ones. And that's where this bacteria or whatever it was lived. And then once she'd made the drink using that, that's how she got the worm in her brain. Great. And I'm assuming if you're making a drink with herbs, it's (laughs) you're going to market it as a health drink. (laughs) It's not like, do you fancy a hangover? (laughs) This will give you a hangover. <laughs> do, you, do you know what? I've got a fairly decent... I don't want to show off. I've got a fairly decent stash of herbs. I couldn't make a single half-decent <laughs> drink out of those herbs. <laughs> and they're proper herbs. However, Chris, what i tell you one thing. If you did make a drink, it might taste awful, but you wouldn't end up with a worm in your brain, so <laughs> yeah. I think you'd probably win. Oh, Also, I've never... I don't, I don't know. I've never cooked with thyme or saffron. I thought, this would make a nice drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa, wouldn't mind drinking this. <laughs> I've had this sort of consistent fear of going to Australia for years. Why? Uh, well, mainly because of the sharks, because I'm petrified of sharks. And a lot of going on holiday somewhere, I want to be able to get in the sea. And I would never have the confidence to do that if I was in Australia. Okay. It's, it's often said that humans don't respect nature. And I feel like Australia is really telling people you shouldn't be living here. There are, <laughs> and no one is listening. There are a thousand things that will kill you. And their ecosystem, from what I've from what I've seen on Passport Patrol, their ecosystem is made of glass. Yes, like someone brings over a toad, and the whole thing comes crashing. Yeah, yeah. Down. If you take if you take a, a a pink lady apple that you bought from your local spa the day before you flew out, if that's in your rucksack, 
you'll basically get teasered to death from what I understand. <laughs> yeah. An ex-girlfriend of mine went to Australia and had a half a pret cheese sandwich in her backpack that she forgot to declare. And she was bang in trouble. They were like, that cheese yeah. sandwich gets out this airport. This whole experiment of Australia will come crashing down. Wow. Doesn't, doesn't suggest a huge faith in the culinary expertise of the country you're going to if you're packing a pret cheese sandwich with you for the... <laughs> There'll be nothing for me out there. <laughs> I, I did. I uh, I did stand up there. I did a three and a half month stand up tour. Oh yes, and I and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, it's too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but did your brain did your brain remain worm free for the trip? Did you did you pull no, that off? Which is why my career grown to a halt, really, because uh, <laughs> I um. I showed real potential when I started doing stand-up. And then I went to Australia, having a good Edinburgh. Uh, I did gigs over there. I did Adelaide, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and then a tour of rural Victoria. Got a, got a, a worm in the old brain. And since then, to be honest, I, I've, I've, I, I've been some level peg. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not particularly funny bloke. I sort of, you know, I am what I am. Little worm that gobbled up punchlines. <laughs> That's what it li- that's what it lives on the part of the brain that sort of yeah. <laughs> creates my, my setup is still of a relatively high standard. I, I can never finish anything off. <laughs> so it's quite it's quite exciting. You see your stand up. You, you'll start and then we we'll go. Oh, this is all. This will be good. I'm excited to see where this yeah, goes. Yeah, it's um, it, I just come up with really interesting ideas. Never pay any of them off. So it's, 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 it can be hugely frustrating. And reviewers have mentioned this. Now, in the ancient world. Uh, including in ancient Egypt, headaches and migraines were sometimes thought to be the responsibility of evil spirits. Spirits that have somehow taken up residence in your mind and then become trapped. Now, I'm going to say this. If your doctor is blaming spirits, I always think that's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. Like, if, if someone said, oh, it's your bloody spirits. That's, that's why, imagine if Michael Owen had been told that after he'd pulled his hamstring. You've got spirits in your leg. <laughs> your your knee your knees are like an episode of Most Haunted. <laughs> it would suggest to me that doctor had gone missed basically missed some crucial lectures and is too embarrassed to admit. Yeah. Now the throbbing pain was the spirit trying to find a way out. The Babylonians call this annoying poltergeist uh, to you. So that begs the question, how would you get rid of a spirit trapped in your in your grey matter? For the seventh century Irish cleric and saint, um, and I'm I'm going to apologise to our Irish listeners, especially the Irish speakers. I'm not sure that this pronunciation is correct. Uh, Aid MacBrick, who lived in Donegal in the northwest of Ireland, and who variously claimed to be able to make pregnancy disappear and to make headaches disappear by absorbing them, even at a distance, into his own head. The man was a liar. The answer lay <laughs> in an incantation. Right, so it ran something like this, but in. Uh, Latin, from the pure I ask the prayers that he cools the noxious fluxes that flow heated in my head, that he cures my head with my kidneys and with the other parts afflicted, with my eyes and my cheekbones, with my ears and with my nostrils. So by this method, the cause of the headache was banished from the patient and because of Mac Brick's apparent success as a healer, his methods were copied and used by various monasteries around Europe. So what was he What was he claiming? What, what would happen then? He was just claiming he would stand near them, or, or as he's not even near them yeah. necessarily, from a distance it said, and he'd just simply look at them and then he'd absorb all the problems. Yeah, deliver this incantation, then you make your pregnancy disappear, you make your headaches disappear by absorbing them. 
and I'm not having a go at the 10th century Irish, they were like, well, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, that's I'd have to great. see the theatre of that. Is he stood there like, um, like trying to suck them in, like? Yeah. Or was he like a, a sort of a t- normal, stressed, too busy 21st century GP? He's like, right, come in. <laughs> come in. <laughs> Quick incantation. Next. <laughs> he'll, he'll do it over the phone between 8 and 10 in the morning. <laughs> um, now, the Babylonians and the Egyptians, by contrast, agreed that the answer to this question of getting rid of spirits was uh, logical. One had to provide an exit, a doorway, or a portal to this headache, right, to this spirit, so that the spirit could simply escape on his own terms. So you needed to give the spirit that was in your head a helping hand, right? Now, the result right. was a procedure called trephination, and this involved... Oh, no. I, I was scared this was heading towards a procedure. Yeah. Now, this involved literally drilling into the skull. Oh, come on. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. An operation that was conducted, of course, without any form of anaesthetic, right? Except maybe you might have a drink, like a slug of booze. Now, if I was about to have my skull drilled into, and the people who who knew about this sort of thing said, listen, now, you want to... You want to get a little bit pissed before it happens. That's when I'm going to treat myself to a slightly nicer bottle of wine than I usually have. <laughs> and then I'm going to whack myself around the head yeah. with it. <laughs> now, tree panning, whether to get rid of a headache caused by an evil spirit or not, has been practised all over the world since prehistoric times. It is one of medicine's oldest treatment methods. Despite the likely conditions in which the operation was carried out, it was remarkably successful. Now, this statistic blew my wow. mind, OK? Of the skulls of prehistoric humans found in France, some 40% of patients seem to have survived. Now, that is known because there is no wow. bone growth around the otherwise obvious hole in their head. Imagine it happening as a teenager, just as you're getting into sort of the opposite, you know, <laughs> going out the opposite sex, maybe. You're trying to pull. Oh, yeah, that. I had a headache about a year ago, but it's fine. <laughs> so, so would it be left as an open hole, basically? Yeah, and then the bone would grow back. You'd, you would feel drafty. Would you put a cork in it? What would you do? <laughs> some some half-chewed chewing gum? What's the idea? What, you've got to seal that with something every day, haven't you? So is it actually trying to cure like the pressure building up inside the skull? Yeah. And that actually... I guess that's what it is. I have had headaches wow. that feel like the horrible pressures building up in my skull so it kind of makes sense i would say that getting the drill out is the nuclear option <laughs> yeah a hole in the front of your head so people people have always had headaches people who always have headaches a headache is horrible so you're you're looking for cures you're looking for a solution i just find it incredible that people are like so what is it your young son's got a headache have you tried drilling into his brain <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's it's oh. it's just how drastic everything is. So a lot of these things, you just have to wait and they yeah. will pass. But if you're doing something during that period, when it eventually ends, you go, well, that thing I was doing was part of yes, the reason it passed. Absolutely. The reality was it was simply time. And this is, this yeah. is why people are able throughout history to sell things and to fool yeah, people. Yeah. Because it's just a matter of time, isn't it? But and- by that point, someone is stuffing lavender um, up your daughter's nose and you're like, yeah, this looks good. Actually, it looks good to me. <laughs> That reminds Tom. Your point reminds me of my one of my dad's favourite thing catchphrases, which is that never if you're sick, go to work. Take the days off when you're better. Like whenever you're sick, get yourself into work, work, and then take the days off when you when you when you're better. How does that work? Why? 
Has your dad never been ill? <laughs> no, because if you don't feel well, just get yourself into work. Just work for the day. What's his, what's his stance on COVID out of interest, uh, Chris? Yeah, is that exactly what I'm thinking, yeah. What, what, yeah. what was his... Is your dad, is your dad Matt Letizia? <laughs> yeah. Go to whatever you've got, go to work. Give it to other people. Yeah, whatever, whatever sickness, virus it is, just get yourself into work. And then when you feel better, have a, have a sick day, but maybe take yourself off, just relax. That enjoy is, enjoy the time that off. That is hilarious. On that, what are you guys? Are you what are you guys like when it comes to that? Are you the sort of people that push yourself to keep working to go in, or what, what's what's your? Where are you? I actually, sort of, well, what sort of people are you? in a pre-COVID age? I would follow my dad's advice. Yeah, I would. I'd like I'd just drag yourself in, just get through it. Yeah. Yes, I did a gig in um, Brussels once, and I had a, a horrific cold. And I was doing a 30-minute set. And it was before the the um, worm entered my brain. So, yes, I was headlining. <laughs> um, but I remember having to go off after 15 minutes to blow my nose, which must have looked great. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the audience must have loved that. Um, no, um, yeah, I think I've changed my opinion a little bit. But the problem with being self-employed as well is often you just, it's very difficult to take time off. Absolutely. I completely agree, especially because you're you're paid by the day. That's how, how most of my work works. Yeah. So it's kind of it's hard not to. I had a similar thing at the Edinburgh Festival once where I did a show and I was unbelievably ill. But I had a reviewer in. I thought I have to do this. And I took a bottle of cough medicine on with me. And throughout the show, I would take a clog of it and continue for five minutes. And after like 40 minutes... What are you glugging it? It's not like after genuinely after forty minutes, a woman stood up and said, "Just say I, I'm a nurse, and you do need to stop doing that." <laughs> oh my god! Now, um, that is incredible. Uh, now, the the treatment of headaches with herbs and scents continued into medieval times, when lavender, sage, rose, or hay were proposed as usefully sweet and effective. If none of this worked and you went to see a doctor in ancient Greece as well as in Europe all the way through to the 19th century, you might face the prospect of being bled. The 19th century they're doing this. Dr. Robert Witt, um, an 18th century Scottish physician, insisted that a nosebleed was the best solution to an obstinate headache. Yeah, I've always thought that. When I've I've got an obstinate headache, I just think, if only someone could punch me in the face, that would be absolutely (laughs) perfect. Get rid of this bloody headache. Where's a fist when you yeah. need it? <laughs> yeah. Blood le- bloodletting, I've always thought, whenever I've read about that through history, is the thing that just blows my mind. When you've got yeah. someone who's really ill on death's door and the doctor turns up and goes, what we need to do here is bleed this guy out a bit more yeah. and then I'll make a, a recovery. Because it, it must have... I don't understand how that could ever have worked. Well, Absolutely. I mean, following ancient Greek methodology... Uh, the, the doctor would use the shaft of a thick goose feather to scratch away the inside of the nasal cavity and then let the blood flow at will. So you've got a terrible headache. And some doctor, in, he goes into his little briefcase, his little bag, <laughs> gets on a massive goose feather and is like, let me stick it up. <laughs> I would never go to the doctor again. There could be a live goose in the corner of the room and he just plucks a feather yeah. out there and yeah. then. He just has a goose in his room yes. at all times. It may not be from a... Yeah, yeah. The, li- the live goose is his assistant. <laughs> The live goose did all the hard yards at medical school, but it crucially doesn't have opposable thumbs. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you've got to ring between uh, eight and ten if you want to see the goose. <laughs> um, alternatively, uh, you might apply leeches to the face or open a temple vein oh. with a cutting knife, all to allow the pressure to subside, to reduce an excess of blood yep. in the body, and therefore restore uh, humoral balance. So there you have it. That's headaches through history. I, I think... Everything I've heard on the podcast so far, so far, the, what you've just said is the biggest reason not to go back to the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the medical treatment now. That thank God no one's going to stick a goose feather up your nose. And I yeah. mean that's you've got off lightly if they're doing that. Or at least it's a reason not to go back to the past when you've got a headache. <laughs> Very briefly, the leeches I think are an interesting thing because why someone has looked at those those unbelievably disgusting things and thought that's what we need to yeah. bring into the put that on your face of all the things you yeah, can use weird, well, of everything the leech leeches still have a medical use don't they they're still uh... they do and maggots and maggots can really help clear up a wound can't they again and this is a very common trope of especially American stand-up the first person to do that <laughs> what were they thinking <laughs> I've got a, a history fact that I think I know. I don't know if we should introduce a jingle where it's bits of historical knowledge we think we know we're not Great. quite confident. He is I'm saying... sure. <laughs> yeah. Half-remembered <laughs> anecdotes. <laughs> I'm going to take what you've just said and turn it into a jingle. He is saying... 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 Half-remembered anecdotes. Half-remembered anecdotes. I'm sure that the medical usage of maggots was discovered in maybe the First World War when soldiers who'd been blasted by shells were recovered from, like, shell holes. And those who had wounds that were infested with maggots had better recoveries than those that didn't. Because that's, and that's how they discovered that actually these maggots are performing wow. a medical triumph. That's really interesting. I've got another half-remembered... Half-remembered. Uh, <laughs> ...fact, which... If you want to, if you want to fact check this, and if you if we've got it wrong, we will always do. Um, uh, we will always uh, accept our mistakes, and and in, in a in a sort of in a clarifications section. However, they looked at uh, pilots who'd been burnt in uh, planes that caught fire. They'd been shot down, and the pilots that landed right. in the sea had far better recovery rates from their burns than pilots who landed on land. And this is my half-remembered fact. The doctors at the time thought, well, it's obvious then, isn't it? This is what we need to do with burns. Salt. So at one point they were putting salt no. on people's burns, thinking it was the salt in seawater, not the fact that it was water. That's my half-remembered historical fact. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Do you know what? I'm banging into the... I think we've just discovered another feature. Half-remembered historical facts. Don't Google it if you've half-remembered it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't fact-check yourself before sending it in. Great. Hello at ohwhatatime.com. Dare I say it, is that Britain's second best format point? <laughs> and just remember as well, because we don't want to spread misinformation, especially in the internet age, we will do a sort of a clarification section and a correction section. Maybe the exactly. third greatest feature might be called a grown-up speaks. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking to you about how the ancients dealt with diabetes in the study of urology. I think diabetes is 
one of those things that uh, a thousand years ago would be a living nightmare. Yeah. Would, it would, temp, would end your life early. It would be horrendous. And now it's one of those things that relatively... It can be managed, can it? Yeah. Yeah, it can be managed. But it wasn't until 1921, the discovery of insulin that transformed the lives of uh, diabetics. And at last, at that point, doctors could treat an illness which, for, with different symptoms and manifestations, had evaded them for, for thousands of years. And that's something to think about. So if you go back to ancient Egypt, as the ancient Egyptians noted in medical papyrus compiled around 1550 BC, certain patients were presented with an ailment that caused them to urinate excessively, resulted in gasping thirst and then weight loss. So they were, the ancient Egyptians were clocking diabetes. That's the first kind of um, acknowledgement of, of, of this disease. So, in the 5th century BC, a doctor in India called Sash Sushruta identified another symptom of diabetes, which he called honey urine. And this is basically how doctors begun to diagnose uh, diabetes. It was so no it was so named because Shashruta, this uh, doctor, noticed that it seemed the we of diabetes patients seemed to uh, attract ants that would otherwise be put off oh, by the smell of human urine. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So like, all, so like all good scientists, he invented a test which could basically prove if a patient was suffering from diabetes. He would take a cup of a patient's suspected honey urine and he would set it amongst a colony of ants. And if the ants moved towards it, that was an indication that the patient may wow. have polyuria. And then he put it in his porridge. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's where the phrase, uh, you've got ants in your pants, comes from, doesn't it? That's how you find out you're, diabetic. you're diabetic, you've got ants in your pants. That's really interesting. So if we fast forward to the Renaissance, various doctors were by now working on the observable symptoms of diabetes. And the Swiss physician called Paracelsus, who was active in the first half of the 16th century, noted that what was left after evaporating urine sampled from patients reporting an excess of water was a residue which he called salt. And this led him to believe that this salt, which he considered the cause of diabetes, was deposited in the kidneys and stomach. So in the Renaissance age, they begin to figure out, okay, it's something wow. to do with the kidneys. And then in the 1770s, Matthew Dobson realised that the salt that was identified by Paracelsus was in fact sugar. And the link between diabetes and sugar production was made. Did he do what... Um sort of uh, police doing like sort of cop dramas where they they think they've found a big stash of cocaine Do you put a little 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 dab on <laughs> his tongue and go bloody hell it's sugar <laughs> that, i mean that's the thing about this study of ancient urology there's lots of evidence to say oh they we noticed that the the, the urine of diabetes patients was sweet who's drinking it yeah 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 who's there's the a lot of tasting fella? piss going on isn't there <laughs> I mean, there's not a lot of ways, other ways you can really analyse urine, apart from giving it a good old gulp. <laughs> <laughs> well, what else can you do? You look at it, you pour it on the ants. Was there a? Is that the lowest, the lowest rung in sort of in in, in Renaissance science? Is that the lowest rung? The uh, the piss yeah. tester is that what it is? There's one guy who can, you know. Well, what would ha what would happen is it's like oh you you doing your work experience next next week so you're in year ten yeah looking forward to it. what are you doing oh I'm uh, I'm I'm doing some stuff at um, at a solicitors actually and um, it's it's mainly just going to be you know copying things out and filing what are you doing I'm going to a hospital ah right, you, you've got a week of piss tasting ahead of you mate. <laughs> 
1674, Oxford-based physician Thomas Willis actively sampled urine in this way. He noted the sweet taste of pee from certain diabetic patients. And he wrote in his diaries that it was wonderfully sweet, as if imbued with honey or sugar. So Ed Gumbel's wee tastes nice, is what we're seeing. Sounds like Ed Gamble's wee tastes like dessert wine, basically, <laughs> is that what we're hearing? Sort of oh sweetened, honeyed, sort of. That's amazing. Do you know, um, now you've said that, every time I drink dessert wine, I'm going to be thinking of, is this someone's urine? Yeah. The, what I find interesting about this, and it always comes back to it, it's just amazing that in the Renaissance era, that long ago, people were just able to make these deductions incredibly that I would have no ch- I know this is, sounds obvious but we talk about one day time being machine or the idea of being chucked back in time chuck me back now I'd have no idea of telling you any of this stuff or even working out what anything I'm just the yeah. leaps that people were yes. making when the, the technology and the equipment and the thought processes were so far behind these incredible leaps that these brilliant people were able to make in the past well a lot of it is accidental. I remember reading another half-remembered historical fact. I remember that the 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 doctor who discovered LSD accidentally ingested it oh, in yeah, a yeah. Uh, in a lab, and it's like your honour. <laughs> and it's like this cup of the cup of urine is knocked over, and it's like oh look at all those ants going after that. Hang on a minute. That's I guess a, oh a lot of the great discoveries are just completely accidental. But if you went if you went back in one day time machine, you could try and spew out all of your spurious knowledge some half remembered facts some stuff that was right you'd be like uh, hi everyone I've got to say uh, diabetes happens when your body doesn't produce enough insulin uh, it's going to make your piss taste sweet so by all means have a taste um, there's, the, 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 the earth revolves around the sun not the other way around the moon isn't made of cheese don't know if any of you think that actually I'm not sure if I got that from kids books uh. well, I wonder okay here's, yeah. here's a well, question it's, it's not flat <laughs> Right. Excuse me, excuse me. Where, where does wind come from? Uh, I'm not entirely sure about that. I remember, I vaguely remember it from a GCSE. Yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll come annoying. back to you later on that. So I don't know. Sorry. What you'd have to approach it like in Memento, where you write loads of stuff on your body. <laughs> you, you know the movie, and then I just go out and read out as much as I can, basically, in the, in the 24 hours I have, naked in the middle of a street, yeah. reading out. Facts. That would affect my what, confidence. Um, right, I'm going to throw you back to let's go call it 500 AD. What fact yeah. are you telling people that is demonstrably true that they can see for themselves that isn't going to get you burners which will blow people's people's minds? Is there anything you could say to them? What that- fact can I give them? That for a brief period, Michael Owen was the best player <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> that he peaked at probably around 20? That's a really good question. What fact... Which, which you it, could point when at we the say sun, 500 you, AD, yeah, like 500 AD, you could point at the sun and go, "The Earth is revolving yeah. around that," but they'd go, "Nah, that's not." That's a good one. But you'd have all this, all this world's knowledge. I think I might have come up with the, 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 the world's fourth greatest feature. What is there something you could tell to an, an ancient that would? They yes. could go. I can see that. Well, is if true. I can choose where I can go back to, it would be the day before they invented fire. <laughs> and then I'd do some rubbing of sticks together in front of people and blow their minds. Yeah. Actually, you know what would happen? I'd go back, I'd rub sticks, and then nothing yeah, yeah, would they would because I don't know exactly how think you do it. Weird. <laughs> I'm not sure. The day before the fire's invented, I think you're pretty much deep. You might be dealing with apes at that point, Tom. And, okay, fair enough. And they are going to rip your head off. And here's another half-remembered historical fact: apes, if they're attacking humans, will go for the genitals first. Okay. It's good to know that. That's useful, actually. No, thanks. So if I'm attacked in a zoo, I should sort of 
cut cut myself like I'm standing in a ball for a free kick. Well, I've heard here's another half Roman horror story. They go for soft things, and testicles are the softest thing. But so if you cover them up, they're probably going for your eyes. Oh my god! So if an ape goes for you, Ellis, first thing you do is put your trousers back on. <laughs> <laughs> That's your first port of call. Oh. Send in if you've got any fat. What would you tell an ancient that, this, is, yeah. that is demonstrably true that would impress them? Hello at com. Yeah, something that you can yeah. prove. What would be a good thing? That's a really good question. There's something... There's something... Was in, who was there? Oh, God. I'm just a fountain of half-remembered historical facts today. But shadows. There's something with shadows that you can prove that the Earth is round and you can measure the time and the distance between things by looking at angles of shadows at certain times of day. Yeah, you're going to be... You, Chris, the greatest of respect, you're going to be met with cynicism. <laughs> Walking around medieval Britain trying to find a shadow. <laughs> the only uh, they were around then as well. The uh, what, the only one of the only facts I remember from school basically is that Pythagoras Pythagoras theorem of the two sides of a triangle. So I can remember that one, but then I'm trying to think about what reaction I'm hoping to get when I tell someone that. Tom, just Tom, grabbing the town, dragging them to a beach with a stick, and just in the sand making out a triangle. A lot of girls like, are like, God, he's sexy. He knows so much about triangles. Can we just all the villagers going? Can we just get to the bit where we burn this guy? Yeah. And then they turn to me and say, "And what do we do with that information?" And I say, "I don't have you no say, idea." You learn it, and then you 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 get a bloody good maths GCSE with it. <laughs> Interesting fact. I tell you what, I would do very briefly. It's not really a fact, but I I've I've thought if I had to go back. To the Victorian era or before, and make money, I would introduce the beef burger. Let's say London. <laughs> if I if I went to the time machine and I had to survive, and make a living, I would introduce the beef burger okay. to London. What? Talk talk me through your steps. Talk me through your steps. All right, it's you're simple. Back. I'm going for a smash burger. <gasps> I don't know what which it is. is. Which is fr- the importance of fruit and vegetables. I would say, listen, you are ill. And you've got access to fruit and vegetables, and if you eat, isn't that all they ate back then? No, I think there's a lot of emphasis on meat. We're, we've 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 now entered a real uh, half remembered fact zone, and I'm not sure if the listeners of this podcast have come to us for half remembered facts. But I think people were quite cynical about the importance of fruit and vegetables at one point in England. At one point, because I saw it on a program once. Oh, scurvy! Scurvy, scurvy is a, a perfect example. example. They yeah, yeah. took us hundreds of years to figure that out. But how are you? How are you then demonstrating to them the importance of them? Are you going look at my no, body? I'm, I eat I'm, fruit I'm and eating veg. an orange, and then I say, and now we wait. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's how long are you waiting for? I'm telling you the truth. Um, how hours? would you? How would you bring the beef burger to Victorian London yes, and make we talk your about fortune? This. Minced beef, yeah, obviously. You, I think basically you get some, you get some beef. Well, we know what a beef burger is. Anyone so, what, do you, what are you doing? So, I'm getting, I'm getting. A, all you need is a sheet of metal and the ability to make a fire. You're on a street corner. You're heating that metal. I'm doing smash so burgers. They're so you're selling it like, like, like a hot dog outside Brixton Tube. Exactly. Right. And they will catch on so quickly. I'm getting uh, minced beef. I'm cooking you know how to make a beef burger I don't, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, that's the bit we're not saying. interested in if anything <laughs> it's 
<laughs> you can imagine two pieces of bread with a bit of meat in between. Yes, yeah. um, I'm buying. I'm buying the bread from elsewhere, so it's unlikely it'll be a burger bun because I yeah. obviously it's not around because the burger didn't exist. What came first, the burger bun or the burger? <laughs> That's one of the old philosophical questions, is it? But I get. I imagine I you get accidentally to go to the bakery and say, "Can I get a burger bun?" They're like, "Yeah, we've got loads here." Oh, it, it already would exists. Catch on. It's it is such a good dish. It's a reason it's uh, so big. And are you now. calling it like a sort of like a like a crane burger or a sort of a Tom huge. sandwich or something? <laughs> Tom sandwich is nice. McDonald's makes over a hundred thousand pounds a year. It's big. So you're it's basically like, saying you would introduce McDonald's to Victorian Britain. <laughs> Yeah, the golden tea. The golden <laughs> tea for Tom. All the great, innovative, transformative, disruptive businesses you could have picked, you're going for McDonald's. <laughs> I guarantee you it would catch on like wildfire. What, what, there's no, there's no, what else is there back there apart from alleyways, <laughs> rain, and sort of like, just misery? And then I come in with the greatest food of all time. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, do get in contact with the show with any ideas you have for. What was it? What are we looking for? Facts. And uh, and also the facts that you'd mentioned to people when you went back in time. And also, what would you introduce to, to Victorian London that would do better than the beef burger? We'll take that as well. Sorry, Chris, back uh, to you. Well, I'll just end on this. I'll take you back to ancient Babylonian times, 4000 BC. Clay tablets at the British Library show a treatment for the following specific ailments. This is translated from a clay tra- tablet. If a man's urine constantly drips and he is not able to hold it back, his bladder swells and he is full of wind, his urine duct is full of blisters, oh. this is how you oh. cure him. You grind some thorns. Yeah. No. Oh dear. Crush oh dear. into pressed oil. And then you blow this mixture into his penis through a bronze tube. That is a bad day. I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but it's at least the thorns are ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have had um, quite an eventful week, but quite a fitting week for what I'm talking about today. I'm going to be talking about the history of the cold and the history of flu, um, because I've had I've had COVID this week. Is it COVID? Which is COVID. It? It's only, it's only been three years, mate. It's coronavirus. <laughs> Living under a rock. What do I call it? COVID. I call it COVID. Is that the right one? You COVID. It's, yes, you call it COVID. <laughs> Who calls it COVID? I've never heard that. Have you... I did for a period, for a long period. Oh, yeah. really? Definitely, until so much so that even after the pandemic had ended, I was still calling it COVID, and people would say, that's it's not that one. Okay. And I couldn't, I never could remember which one it is, but it's COVID. I've had that one. The bad okay. one. The one that's, that kept us inside for ages. Right, that one. so you've got COVID, and you have it now, don't you? Well, I think I'm on the very end of it. It's worth saying we're doing this remotely. Yes, I'm not sat yes, in front of yeah. uh, Ellis and Chris. No, no, no. Coughing and and we don't faces. end a really great routine, a uh, really great section by getting off with each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just to describe, it, just to describe anyway. where Tom is, he's in a pangolin cave, and uh... <laughs> he's having the time of my life. <laughs> so, I want to talk to you about, crucially, the story of the of colds and cold treatment in the 18th century. So according to Professor Ronald Eccles of Cardiff Common Cold Centre, colds have been with us ever since humans gathered in any sort of community, which is at least since the Iron Age onwards. That's when they think that colds started kicking off, basically, when we started hanging around in groups, okay? Um, But whereas now, when we have sort of like 
Lemsip and what's Netflix and stuff like this, in the past, treatment for colds was very, very different. So, for example, in the 18th century, people, one of the main ways people used to deal with a cold uh, was you just simply get hammered. This was basically <laughs> what it was. <laughs> people would get very drunk. They'd make hot wine with the berries from the elderflower tree. And the idea was if you got wasted and you kept drinking, you'd get rid of your cold. So let's start by talking about that as an approach. If that was still the accepted approach now, if your partner would come into your room every few hours to check that you'd finished your Stella, if that was still the sort of <laughs> the approach to a common cold, how do you think you'd deal with that? Would you want that? I think I'd dread having to drink loads of wine. I'm, well, I'm, there was once there was once a Glastonbury where I turned up and I wasn't well. I had a cold, and I was like, "I'm just going to drink through this." So I think I was going for that ancient approach, and uh, I think it kind of worked. It worked for a bit. That first day, I felt great, and then the next day, I had twice as bad a hangover because yeah, you yeah. have the illness oh, really? and then an actual hangover, and it added up. But I do think there is probably something in it in the short term, and I refer specifically to that scene in Braveheart where one of them needs an operation and they just get really drunk. And which is a common thing. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's, it also reflects what we were talking about earlier about just letting time pass. And I suppose if you're just drinking through yeah, it, you're getting hammered and you're having time. a merry old time. The cold's going to go in time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And if you're drunk for half of it, then maybe that part of it's yeah. less miserable. But at the same time as this was happening, um, progressive physicians such as William Buchan didn't agree with his approach. So in his 1772 book, Domestic Medicine, he said, many attempt to cure a cold by getting drunk. But this, to say no worse of it, is a very hazardous and foolhardy experiment. And instead, uh, in the late 18th century, he started suggesting things like resting in bed and eating bland food like chicken broth, what a porridge and toast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which obviously is quite similar to what people do today. Although I think I'd expect more from my GP than going there and him saying, just, just have some toast. I think that would feel like... <laughs> There's not enough information there yeah. for me to be. It's a, do you know what? But that's the approach. I would say that's the '80s approach. Like, yeah, go pop, pop some chicken soup on, watch an episode of Neighbours. Yeah, wa- absolutely. Watch Kickstart. <laughs> yeah. Watch Going for Gold. Yeah. But in general, though, uh, medicine during this period wasn't as particularly scientific. Now, this is what's interesting about it, and because of this. And because there wasn't much uh, local medical provision for much of Britain, a lot of uh, local areas lacked adequate provision. Um, But at the same time, there was a rising literacy levels in the country. People started to take things into their own hands. And crucially, they started to write into the newspapers with recipes for how to deal with colds. So people would treat their own colds using recipes that other non-trained medical people, just people around the country, had written into the newspapers and the newspapers gladly printed. So every week there'll be more and more of these cold remedies. So an example being the Derby Mercury in 1790 proposed adding a large teacup of linseed oil, two penny worth of stick licorice, a quarter pound of sun raisins, and then simmering the mixture over a slow fire till it reduces adding brown sugar, rum, white wine, vinegar and lemon juice. And then they drunk that in bed. And they said, if it's taken in time, the newspaper told its readers, this may be said to be an almost infallible remedy. But the most interesting thing about all of these things is how much sugar appears in all of it. Now, would you like to care to guess why this is? Why there's sugar in all of these things? I think it perks you up. It just gives you a hit yeah. of energy. No. Oh. that's a good. It's a good guess, but it's not that. 
The reason there's sugar in all of these things is because it was one of the essential trade goods of Britain's empire. Ah. So the consistent flow of sugar from the Caribbean, which was worth more than 2.5 million on import then, which is 350 million today, meant a use had to be found for sugar everywhere. So it went into cakes, biscuits, puddings, and it also went into basically all medical cures. And that's the reason it's still in our medical cures today. So when you look at LEMSIP, and you see sort of uh, sucrose and, and citric acid and things like this uh, exist. This is because there was this pattern of shoving sugar into wow. all medicine because we had to use, we had to use it basically. Wow. And so we've become completely used to it now. So everything has a sweet coating. All the hot medicinal drinks are sweet. All of these things are sweet. And it's all from this period where sugar was shoved into all medicine. That's crazy. Also, I have them to thank for uh, that nice banana penicillin used to get as a kid that was kept in the fridge. Yes, yes, I remember that. I love that. As a as a kid, and probably until my mid twenties, I used to have a really, really, almost chillingly sweet tooth. Right, <laughs> like <laughs> I love chocolate. <laughs> yeah, and then I started. You know, you read about it, and it's not just. It's not just your teeth, which is always the thing we were told as, a, as kids. And I just think, well, I'll just brush my teeth and go to the dentist; yeah. it'll be fine. And then I can continue eating French fancies at this sort of alarming pace. <laughs> and you read about it, you know, but sugar is like for your general system. And I really, really cut down. And then if you stop adding sugar to things and stop eating chocolates and biscuits and sweets. Then, when you have something like a slice of birthday cake at a party, it tastes mental. It is <laughs> absolutely <laughs> mad because your palate's too much. Your palate's yeah. changed. I, do, do, absolutely. Being, being a child of the eighties, my mum yeah, would too. give me a bottle, like like kids have bottles now, but it would be filled with tea. And it would have three sugars in it. And so yeah, until yeah, I was yeah. in my wow. mid-twenties, I would have three sugars in my tea. And then at some point I stopped. And now if I taste the tea with sugar in it, it makes me feel sick. It is yes, disgusting. Yes, I agree. Sorry, when you were a child, yeah. you were given like a baby's bottle yeah, with a Yeah, baby's bottle with, with, tea, with, tea, with in tea in it. it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mate, I was born in Dagnum. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Why, is only, to ease, why is she trying to ease you into tea? Not only why, tea. That's not the thing you have to do with a child. In it. it had three sugars in it as well. My f- were you a, a friend- terrible sleeper as a baby? <laughs> I don't know. A friend, a friend of mine, when she was going to nursery, used to take coffee in a flask. <laughs> Are you... What? <laughs> How old was she? Like three, four. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mellow birds, so the sort of weaker stuff. She wasn't drinking double espresso. <laughs> But she still, <laughs> mad, isn't it? She, kids, today. was she quite? Was she quite full on as a child? <laughs> That's a genuine question. She, had a, she just had a stressful side job, many different hustles. I've, she was a high I've achiever. given up coffee. I have given up. I don't drink coffee because it makes me that anxious. The idea of what I'd have been like when I was three, having <laughs> taken a, a latte into nursery, <laughs> freaking out about the fact I'm the smallest kid in there. All my anxiety's coming in. I can't believe you had tea in a bottle. That is crazy. <laughs> my wife cannot believe it. Would yeah. you unscrew the Would you unscrew the lid and dip your rusk in it? Would you, would you do that? Was that a thing? It'd be quite pleasant. It is nuts how much tea my my family drink. Uh, my dad hasn't turned down a cup of tea in his life. He's <laughs> yeah. like a forty a day man. <laughs> it's incredible. 
<laughs> I will drink, sometimes I will drink tea after tea. I might have eight in a row until it gives me a headache. That will be the only point I will stop. Really? Okay. Yeah, it can't be good, can it? What I'd love to say, I can't wait for the scientist to tell me what happens when you give a child tea in a bottle with three sugars. Well, I'm like, I'm like the canary down the mine. I'm also imagining social situations where you've gone somewhere with your your mum and the person you're visiting says, Patricia, what would you like? Patricia say, I'll have a coffee. And would Chris like something? Yeah, he'll have, a, he'll have an Earl Grey. <laughs> there you are, sat in your nappy in a high chair. Got any PG tips? Got any, you get a double espresso for him. And don't, hold, don't hold back the sugar. <laughs> Did you just yeah. sort of, like those V60 pour overs, the really, really strong stuff. Yeah. You could have a he's couple to, of them. He's trying to drop his nap at the moment, so let's... <laughs> Let's really double down in espresso. And have Get you got any Lambert it. and Butler? <laughs> incredible. Wow. So, <clears throat> so this is the reason that sugar is was, was in everything. But I'd like to give you uh, some appreciation of quite how lucky we are that that's what we've been left with, these sweet, lovely medicinal drinks. Because throughout history, there have been some insane remedies for colds. So I'm going to give you four of them now. So ancient Roman physician... Uh, Pliny the Elder uh, wrote a book called Natural History and it's pretty sceptical as a record for the folk medicine around at the time for cold symptoms. So coughs, he noted, were supposed to be relieved at that time in ancient Rome by a wolf's liver administered in mulled wine. Thoughts on that? The mulled wine element? Fine. But can you imagine trying to kill a wolf when you're feeling rough? (laughs) I'll just ride out the cold, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. You just want to be in bed watching Holmes under the hammer. You're like, God, I need to kill a bloody wolf now. (laughs) Ah, thank you so much for listening this week. And we've got a bit of an announcement, actually. This is the 12th episode you're listening to now, which was meant to be the end of the series. But to be honest, we're having so much fun doing this podcast and your emails and the way you've been chipping into the show has just been so much fun that we're not willing to end the series. So we've got good news, basically. We're going to be back next week too. And we've got one eye on doing specials all over Christmas around the history of Christmas and all that stuff. So thank you for supporting the show. It means so much. We're having so much fun that uh, we can't just simply end the series now. So we will be back next week. And the other way that you can support the show is, of course to leave a rating and review we say it every week but it would be great if you haven't done that bit of admin we would love it if you could go on and support the show by giving us a little rating and review five stars if you can but hey who am i to enforce that rule thank you so much for listening and great news we'll be back next week we'll see you then bye bye bye